How many of you have ever gotten frustrated? <laughs> Did it happen this morning earlier? <laughs> you know, it's, it's amazing the little things sometimes that frustrate us, like how long it occasionally takes to get through the drive through at a so-called fast food restaurant. Or... Uh, um, How fast it, how long it takes you to log on to the to your Wi-Fi. You know, and, and really it's not that long. Everything's relative, but it can the little things can sometimes frustrate us. Big things can as well when it when it takes too long. Now I know there are young adults in this church right now who are frustrated because you're wishing, you're thinking, I should have, I should have found that perfect person to be my husband, be my wife already, and it's taken too long. Some of you found one and it wasn't the right one and now you're divorced and you're, you're looking for the right one and you're thinking it's still taking too long, right? And it can be frustrating. Life can be frustrating. Some of you, you know, you're at work and you should have had that promotion two years ago and don't understand why you haven't gotten it yet and that's, that's frustrating and, and on and on we can go in life. Uh, some of us, you know, some of you maybe uh, you're frustrated because your retirement funds aren't growing as quickly as you would like them to. As, as, you know, big things, little things, it's easy to get frustrated when things don't happen on the, on the timeline that, that we, would, we would like them to happen. And, and that's a big part of life. But here's what I want you to understand. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes things not happening as quickly as you or I would like them to happen is part of God's plan for us. Because God has this way of seeing things we don't see, and there's a reason sometimes he says it doesn't need to happen when you want it to happen. He's seen things you don't see. Sometimes it's just part of his plan. Now, here's the catch. The way you and I react, the way we respond when things don't happen on the timeline we would like, our attitude in those moments, the decisions we make in those moments, go a long way towards shaping our life and the quality of it. Go a long way towards shaping our relationship with God. Whether we learn to trust God and wait on God or we rush ahead and do things quicker than God wants them done, that, that, that's a big deal in determining what life looks like. And because not everything happens on the timeline you and I would like, it's important we learn from God how to deal with it. That's what I want us to talk about this morning. And if you have your Bible, you can open it with me to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 16 in the Old Testament because there's a man, King David, who is a great example for you and me of, of God having a plan for his life. His journey was taking him from here to there, but it took a long time to get there. And we can learn some important lessons that can help us know how do we do life, how do we react, how do we think and feel and make decisions when God's plan, this journey he has us on, this route we're traveling is taking longer than we wish it would or longer than we would do it if we could control it all ourselves. Now, those of you who know your Bible history will remember that the very first king of Israel in the Old Testament was a man named Saul. God selected him. God blessed him, made him king. But along the way, Saul started disobeying God, started making bad decisions and, 
became selfish and arrogant and God rejected him as king and chose another man to replace him. And the man God chose to replace Saul as king was David. But here's the thing. From the day God chose David and sent the prophet Samuel to anoint him with oil as king, from that day to the day that David actually sat on the throne as king was at least 15 years. And it would be another seven years, making it somewhere between 22 and 25 years before he would be king of the whole nation. Now, would you call that a long journey? Here's where you are, and God says, this is my plan for your life. This is your destiny. Over there, see that? You're going to be king. What God did not tell David in the beginning was, David, it's going to be 15 to 20 years before you're king of anything and 20 to 25 years before you're king of all of it. You know, that's a a third or a fourth of the average person's life. That's a long journey. And David, listen, David handled it in such a way that he became known as the greatest king in Israel's history. He expanded their borders. The economy was prosperous. And it's through the lineage of David that we receive the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So he became successful. But listen, all of that would have been lost if he had not traveled the journey that lasted 15 to 25 years the right way. During the trip, he could have messed it all up. The same goes for all of us. Sometimes during the journey to that ultimate destination, that ultimate goal, that big picture, we can mess it all up and have to start over. But there are ways that we can can decide things and feel about things that lessen the likelihood of us messing it up and actually increase the likelihood that we're going to end up in a good place. So it's really important you and I know how to do life When God says it's not going to happen as quickly as you wish it would. So what we're going to do this morning is real quickly, look at the story of David, those those 15 to 20 years of waiting. What happened? Don't have time to read all of it. Just going to read a few verses and share with you the story. We're going to start in 1 Samuel 16, make our way through the end of that book and the first two chapters of 2 Samuel is where the story is found. Now, God has rejected Saul as king. And in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, God speaks to the prophet Samuel in verse 1 and says, Samuel, it's time for you to stop grieving. He was heartbroken that Saul had failed as a king. And God says, Samuel, stop crying. I've chosen someone else. And in verse 2, verses 1 and 2, he says, Samuel, I want you to go. I want you to go to to Jesse, the Bethlehemite there in Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons. Then you drop on down. Down in in chapter 16, the story of of Samuel traveling to Bethlehem and Jesse brings his boys to him and and every time one of his sons, he has eight sons, and 
They stand before the prophet Samuel. And God says, nope, not him, 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 none of them. And then he says, do you have another one? He says, yeah, my youngest little fellow, about 15, 14, 15 years old, something, and he's out in the fields taking care of the sheep. Bring him in. And David comes in. And as soon as Samuel the prophet sees David, God says to Samuel, he's the one. Now the key is verse 7 of chapter 16. As Samuel was looking at all these other boys, God said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his height, his stature, because I've rejected him, talking about the other sons. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? The heart. You see, one of the ways you can be successful in life is by looking at things the way God does rather than the way the average person does. Because the average person focuses on what? All the outside stuff. The appearance. The circumstances. All the, all the stuff going on. How many times have you looked in, at life and, and looked at the circumstances of your life while you're on this journey and things aren't happening as quickly or smoothly as you would like them to happen and, and you keep focusing on everything going on around you and because of that you end up giving up, you end up being discouraged, you end up doing something that later you regret because you were completely focused on the outer appearances, on the circumstances rather than taking care of the heart. See, God knows what's inside of a person. And if you want to make it successfully on the journey of life, and in particular when you're having to wait a while, you've got to make certain that you keep your heart such that when God looks at it, he says, that's a good heart. You've got to keep your heart relationship with Jesus Christ healthy. And it's not dependent on the circumstances. It's dependent on the depth of your relationship with him. Because here's the thing. Men and women in marriage who love each other and parents and kids who love each other work through tough stuff because in their heart they love each other. The same thing is true with you and God. Because if your love and your heart is completely dependent on the outward appearance and the circumstances, there's going to be a lot of struggles. So that's the first lesson from, from David. Even before he's anointed king, God looked inside that teenage boy and said, that teenage boy has a good heart and I'm going to do things in his life. What does God see when he looks in your heart? Well, the story continues down in verse 12 of chapter 16. David comes in, says his appearance was ruddy. He had beautiful eyes, a handsome appearance. Ruddy means reddish blood. It's not that he had red hair, but it means he wasn't pale. He, 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 looked, he had the appearance of somebody who had blood flowing through his body, and he was healthy, and he, he just looked like a strong young man. And he was a handsome man. See, just because you have a good heart doesn't mean you have to be ugly. Did I say that? I did, didn't I? Well... You see, take that for what it is. I don't know. Verse 14. Now remember, he's anointed king. He, they pour, Samuel in verse 13 pours oil on him, says you're going to be the next king. Now Saul doesn't stop being king. He's king for another, another 15 years at least. And in and, and verses 14 and following, God sends this evil spirit into Saul and he begins having all kinds of problems, mental problems and emotional problems. Here's one of the things, folks. Listen. When God removes his hand of favor and his hand of blessing from you, the real you shines. 
And so Saul, for the rest of his time on earth, would be having all of these problems. The real him just, it was there. And, and, and these emotional issues and these mental issues and his, and his anger and his evil and his meanness, it just, it all shone through. In verse 16, some of Saul's uh, servants there in the government, they know he's having problems. They said, we need to find somebody to help him. And their idea is to find someone who's really skilled at playing musical instruments that can play the harp and so on. And, 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 and when, when Saul's having a bad day, he can play some soothing music and calm him down. And one of his servants later in that chapter says, hey, there's this young man over in Bethlehem. I heard play one time, and he's strong and courageous, but he's a, he's a talented musician. His name is David, and his dad is Jesse. And, and Saul says, well, go get him. And, and, and they send to Jesse's house and say, the king wants David to come, and David moves to the palace. And later in chapter 16, when Saul's having a bad day, David beautifully plays the harp, and, and it just helps Saul feel better and calm down. And, and Saul begins to like David and love him and care about him, and then he makes him his personal armor bearer, which means when Saul was getting ready to lead the army into battle, David would put on his hip and, you know, dress and all of his, you know, uniform and that heavy metal stuff they used to wear to protect themselves. And so think about something. Not long after God chose David and Samuel the prophet anointed him with oil as a 15, 16-year-old kid that he's going to be the next king, Saul's still king. David's just a, you know, a guy taking care of sheep with a poor family heritage. And, but, but God said, you're going to be the next king. So where does God then put David on the throne? No, where does he put him? In the palace beside the throne. Can you think of a better place to learn how to lead a country? Can you think of a better place to learn the ins and outs and the do's and don'ts? Can you think of a better place for him to make connections with all the people in the government and the military and, and other nations so that, that he could be learning and being and, and, and networking and getting to know people? See, God said, hey, you're going to be king, but not yet. But I'm going to put you somewhere to help you get ready for the day. And sometimes what God's doing is getting you ready for what's to come. That's why you have to keep your heart right and keep your heart healthy and love Him and serve Him and don't make bad decisions along the way because He's preparing you for what is yet to come. Well, chapter 17. Saul leads the Jewish army out to battle the Philistines. Now, David is too young to permanently be in the, in the army, so he's spending some of his time back home with his daddy taking care of the sheep and other parts of his time in the palace serving the king, and he's back and forth. And, and, and so the armies are out there, the, the Jewish army and the Philistine army, facing each other. And, and David leaves his father to take some food to his brothers who are older, and they're in the army, and this giant Goliath comes out. And Goliath issues this challenge to the, to the Israeli army. And he, he says, rather than all of us fighting and killing each other, I'll fight your best soldier, and whichever one of us wins, the army wins, and that's it. And he insults them, he insults God, and nobody will do anything. And here comes David, this teenage boy, with food for his brothers, and he hears this giant, and he says, well, who's going to go take care of him? And 
Everybody says, not me, not me, not me. And David says, well, I'll do it. They all think he's crazy. But he insists. They take him to the king. And, and, and he says to the king down in chapter 17, over in verses 36 and 37, he said, I've already killed a bear and, and a lion. And just like God delivered the bear and the lion to me, God will deliver this Philistine to me. And so King Saul says, okay, now, Saul was probably going to use it as a diversion, but God had a different plan. And so David goes out. You know the story. He's got this little bag of rocks and a sling, and he pulls out a smooth stone, puts it in that sling, and here's that giant over there with his big sword, and he slings the rock, and it hits him in the forehead, and he falls to the ground. And whether he was dead then or just stone, you know, uh, stunned and knocked out, I don't know. But anyway, uh, David doesn't have a sword, so he walks over, and he pulls out the giant sword and cuts his head off and carries it back to the camp and becomes a national hero. Now, what just happened? All of a sudden, this future king that nobody knew much about, who'd already been learning about being a leader and being in government and being, being with the army, all of a sudden, this young teenage boy now earns the respect of every foot soldier in the Israeli army. You think that prepared him for the future? He became a national hero. He became popular. Do you think that would help him to unite and lead the nation in the future? Of course. And so you, you continue over in uh, uh, chapter 18 in verse 1. David becomes good friends with Jonathan, the, the son, the son, uh, the favored son of King Saul. And not only is he popular, but in verse 5 of chapter 18, Saul says, hey, you've proven yourself. I trust you. It's time now to give you an, a promotion. And so in verse 5, in the middle of it, the king set David over the men of war. In other words, he put David in charge of his most elite group of soldiers. Now, in nations that have kings and stuff, the ones who usually lead a coup are who? The ones closest to the king. So here David has the opportunity to be the leader of and develop relationships with, be trusted by those who were the most elite military unit in the nation. Do you think God was getting him ready for what was to come years down the road? to get a sight, uh, a sense of David's uh, popularity, in verse 6 of chapter 18, when they were coming back from killing the Philistines after he killed the, the, you know, Goliath the giant, verse 6 says, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing, dancing to meet King Saul, had their tambourines and other instruments. And in verse 7, the women sang, here's the song, Saul is slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. In other words, Saul was still somewhat popular. It's just that David was becoming more popular. And this is when everything began to change and to turn in David's life. Up to now, everything had gone smoothly on this journey. Yeah, he wasn't immediately king, but everything had gone really well and really smoothly. Saul liked him. Saul promoted him. He'd had great accomplishments. But now it's going to get hard. He would spend the next 10 years at least on this journey to becoming king, having one tough experience after another. 
because after everybody was singing about how great David was in verse 8, Saul became angry because the saying displeased him. He became jealous that David was more popular than him. And so Saul, he didn't tell anybody right away. He didn't tell anybody. But in his mind, he decided that he was personally going to kill David. And so in chapter 18, Saul is practicing throwing his spear. And, and he pretends one day to have one of these crazy spells. And, and he throws it, and his aim is bad because he's trying to hit David. And he just misses. And that happens more than once, but each time God protects David. And Saul misses. But he's very, very angry at David. And then eventually it goes public. Now notice how, notice how David responded. Because nobody knows Saul's trying to kill him yet, okay? At the end of chapter 18 and verse 30, at the end of verse 29, it says David was Saul's enemy continually. In other words, Saul was just constantly hating him. But in verse 30, he's leading that elite military group out into battle against the Philistines. And it happened at the middle of verse 30, it happened as often as they went out that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so his name was highly esteemed. The whole time that Saul was trying to make it hard on David, David kept doing his job and doing it well. Continued to serve and lead the military and do it with excellence and his reputation and the sense of respect people had for him just continued to grow because he was showing people that, that he was going to be consistent and he was going to be faithful. Chapter 19, pressure turns up a little bit more. Because in verse 1, Saul told Jonathan, his son, and all his servants to put David to death. Now, he's not just trying to do it by himself. He's told everybody in leadership, I want that young man dead. But back at the very first verse of chapter 18, David had developed a really good friendship with Jonathan, the king's son. And when his dad made it known that he wanted the leaders to kill David, Jonathan warned David. Now, folks, listen. When you're on your journey, and you're here and you're trying to get over there, God wants you over there, and it's taking a lot longer than you want it to take, and maybe it's not going as smoothly as you want it to go, during that journey, don't burn bridges. God quite often uses relationships to help us get where we need to go in life. Is that not true? God uses people. And so David would spend the next decade, think about this. God said, young man, you're going to be king. The prophets already anointed him as king, but he would spend the next decade as a fugitive, as a criminal, running from the king and the king's army who were trying to kill him. And there were some close calls during that decade. 
But boy, David teaches us so much about how to handle it when that kind of stuff stuff happens. Look with me in First uh, Samuel chapter 19. Is where where he becomes the public enemy, and they 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 try to kill him, and he's going to be a fugitive. Time passes, and in chapter 22, David comes to this cave. Now remember, he's hiding from King Saul. And in verse 1 of chapter 22 at that cave, his brothers and his father's household heard of it. They went down there to be with him. And in verse 2, every, notice this, everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to him and he became captain over them and now there were about 400 men with him. In other words, people were starting to get tired of Saul. He had abused so many people. He'd hurt so many people, mistreated so many people, not cared about those who were disadvantaged. And David's a hero. Everybody knows how good David had been and all he had done and, 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 and his, his greatness. They, they all knew that. And so here's David hiding from this crazy king, and so the people start coming to him. And out of that crowd of people... He's able to put together an elite army of 400 men. Those 400 soldiers would stay with David for the rest of his life. Do you think they developed some bonds of loyalty during those years? That would again serve him when he would later become king? Now, David, listen to this. This is important for, for all of us. While David was spending these 10 years on the run as a fugitive, do you know what David did not do? David did not spend those 10 years sulking. He did not spend those 10 years pouting. He did not spend those 10 years being filled with resentment and bitterness and anger and blame and this and that and all that negative stuff that tries to dominate us. He didn't go there. You think maybe during these 10 years God was testing David's heart? Because if you're going to be a leader, if you're going to do some great things in life, there are going to be challenges You think maybe God wanted to know what, what David's heart would do, how he would react before God actually put him on the throne? You think maybe God was conditioning David? What David does is he just keeps loving God, keeps serving God, keeps his heart right with God, and when there are opportunities to serve others and help others, he seizes them. And there's one example in chapter 23. There's others, but just this one real quick. David comes to this city called uh, Keilah and the Philistines. This is a city down in the lowlands of Judah. It's on the, near the border of, of Philistia. And the Philistines were, were, were always militarily attacking that little city, plundering it. In other words, they'd go in there and they would steal the food, steal the livestock, harass the people, just make life miserable for those, for those Jewish citizens of that, of that little town. And in verse 5, you know what David does of chapter 23? David takes his army of 400 men, attacks the Philistines, defeats them, 
recovers all the stuff the Philistines had stolen and brings it back to the citizens of that city. And he did things like that more than once in these chapters during that decade of being a fugitive. Do you think that earned him some credibility with the citizens of that country? Do you think that told them anything about the heart that was in him and how he felt about them? See, when, when, when your focus is just on your circumstances and just on, oh, well, I, I need to be over there and I don't understand why it's taking so long, when you live in that, it's like living with blinders on and you don't see the opportunities that are there along the way. You don't see the opportunities to serve God and to be an instrument of God and to be a blessing of God to others. Learning to, to keep your heart right with God through all of it helps you see a little more clearly and a little bit more like God sees while you're on that journey. Well, we need to jump ahead. Finally, Saul dies. The last chapter in 1 Samuel, chapter 31, Saul leads the Jewish army into battle against the Philistines, and Saul and his sons are all killed in battle. Now, this happens 15 years at least after Samuel the prophet anointed David as king. It's been a long journey, most of it difficult. And now Saul is dead. And in 2 Samuel, the next book, chapter 1, David hears about it. Do you know how David reacted? I mean, we might think the natural reaction would be, yay, finally! That's not what he did. In chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, verse 11, David took hold of his clothes and he tore them. Because in the Middle Eastern culture and in Jewish culture, when you were heartbroken and you were grieving or when you were repenting of some sin in your life, you would tear your clothes as a sign of bitterness and a sign of repentance and a sign of grief and a sign of sorrow. But not only did David do that, but those men with him did it. And then... Verse 12 says, they mourned and wept and fasted for Saul and Jonathan and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. You see, David's heart was so in tune with God, he understood on that day when Saul and his sons died, the Israeli army lost a battle which meant other soldiers also died. And there were families throughout that nation who were hurting and he wasn't just so consumed with his dream and his goal and his future that he could no longer see the ramifications of all this history on other people. Getting completely wrapped up in self is not a formula for a great life. And then in chapter 2, 
David finally becomes king. But notice how it happens in verse 1 of chapter 2. Afterwards, David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? He didn't just immediately run to the capital and sit on the throne. He sought God. He didn't just assume that this was the day. God, what's my next step? Do you want me to go up to the city now or not? God, he didn't make an assumption. He prayed and asked for guidance. And God said, go, it's time. And in verse 4, the city, the men of, the, the men of Judah came and anointed him king. And, and as I said earlier, it was another seven years before he became king of all the other tribes of the, of the whole nation and united them. And, and folks, there's so many other stories from David's life during this time of, of, of journey, this long route that he took to the throne. But let me just wrap this up by, by sharing with you some, some, key, some key lessons. We've already talked about some. Let me share some more things with you, okay? Here, here's one thing I want you to get. Sometimes God's promises take a long time to be fulfilled. Because God's not always in a hurry the way we are. what we do when God's taking a while to fulfill his promise, when we get in a hurry, what we do, what we do during those moments in life, those seasons in life is important. Because often it's in the times of waiting that people mess up, that people disobey God, that people give up. What if David had given up during that decade of being a fugitive? What if David had done had decided to do things the wrong way during that decade of being a fugitive? Would he have become the greatest king in Israel's history? Would he have become the one through whom God sent the Messiah? It's during the times of waiting that Satan attacks us and tempts us. Here's another lesson. During the seasons of waiting, when, when God says it's going to take longer than you want it to take, it's during those seasons that who you listen to matters most. Because there will be people who will speak into you words of encouragement and others words of discouragement. People who will speak to you words of faith and others who will speak words of unbelief and doubt. People who will speak into you positive things and those who will speak into you negative things. And who you choose to hear and listen to matters. It's during these times when the God's, God's route for our journey takes a while that our faith can be stretched and strengthened. It's during these days when if we keep our heart right that our intimacy with Christ can be enhanced. Now, while we're waiting, that doesn't mean we do nothing. David blessed the people in that little village who had been attacked by the Philistines and got all their livestock and crops back and he did that more than once. He, he, helped, he, he helped people. He served. He served while he was a fugitive. 
While, while we're on journey, while, while that route's taking a while, doesn't mean we, we do nothing. And, and I, want, I want to take a couple of minutes and say something about this church. Because these lessons are true not only for us individually, but they're true for us as a family of faith. Part, part of our long journey as a church is paying off the debt on this campus. Now, I'm gonna be, let me be candid for just a moment. I know there are people who say when you're paying for buildings and debt, oh, it's just about the church. It's just for the church. It's just for the church. It, it, what, what we're doing. I want you to think about something. God has blessed us with this campus and this facility, and there are many of us who don't understand the blessing that this place is to so many ministries and groups in this community. If you think this building is just about us, no, you're wrong. When we made this brochure available a few weeks ago, there's one page in here that talks about just a handful of our ministry partners, Christian ministry partners, and then non-Christian agencies in the community that we partner with in ways to bless people. Can I just share a few? I, I could talk for 30 minutes about that. Let me just for two minutes tell you something to help you understand. Christian ministries, do you realize that, that we host events in here every year Banquets at which ministries raise a large percent, some of them the majority of their annual budget for doing ministry. Whether it's the, the, the pregnancy center here in Rock Hill or the Fellowship of Christian Athletes or the Gideons or this coming April, the Children's Attention Home or, or also in April, Connie Maxwell Children's Home having an event here. And I could go on and on and on and we have quotes we talked the, the blessing that this church and this campus is to say that this is just about First Baptist Church misses so much that God enables us to do to, to bless other ministries because of what they can do here that they can't do in other places. So they can do the ministry that God's given them because we're part of a kingdom partnership. And what about our partnerships with the city of Rock Hill and the school district and agencies in this community? Do you think it blesses Rock Hill and makes this a better place? Because every January, there are 600 to 700 people, black, white, and so on, gathered here every, every January for the annual MLK prayer breakfast. And people are getting to know one another. Do, do you think that positive event has any positive impact on this community? And do you think that the fact that a First Baptist church, a predominantly white church, I, I want us to be more ethnically diverse, but predominantly a white church, don't you think that says something to this community? What about in May this year? We've, we've been doing it for years. When we have a banquet every year for the police, the different departments in this part of South Carolina, and every year the officers who've been killed in the line of duty are remembered and their families are here and the, the heads of those various police departments recognize those families and we minister to those families and that will be very poignant this year, won't it? Do you think that says anything to our law enforcement community? Do you think that blesses them and their families in any way when there will be hundreds of police officers in here for that luncheon that we do every year? And on and on I could go talking about things like that. If you haven't read it yet, take the brochure and look at it. There's, there's, there's copies in the back. Get you a copy if you don't have one. Um, school district events. Do you know that every year we host a baccalaureate service for Rock Hill High School in this room? 
We'll have an event coming up later this year for Leslie Elementary School. I could go on and on and on. And my point is, yes, we're on journey. And I look forward to the day when that debt is paid. But that doesn't mean we're not doing anything until then. And think about all the ministries that each of you are involved in. And think about the fact that this church, out of approximately 50,000 Southern Baptist churches in America, every year is somewhere between number 100 and 125 out of 50,000 and giving to international missions. To say we're doing nothing misses it. But we're going to continue on that journey to paying the debt while we continue doing ministry that makes a difference in people's lives. And so we're going to make our commitments next to them. One last point and I'm done. I'm way out of time. Here's the last thing. When God puts you and me and us on a journey and it takes longer than we wish it would take, here's what I want you to know. The wait is always worth it. Because where God ultimately takes you is always, always worth it. Do you believe that? I do. Would you stand with me? As the musicians come. Now, two times you do not want to wait. Listen. Two times you do not want to wait. One, when you know God's will, when you know what God is telling you to do, that's not the time to wait. That's the time to act. And the second one, when you're lost, you don't have a relationship with Christ, and all of a sudden you realize you need a relationship with Christ. All of a sudden you realize Jesus is the only way you can be forgiven and saved. When you come to understand that, that is not a time to wait. That's a time to act. And so as we sing this song, I'm inviting you to come to one of these pastors and say, I'm not waiting anymore. I'm giving my life to Jesus and I want to become a Christian and know that I have a relationship with Christ. I want to be saved today. I'm not waiting any longer. Come to one of these pastors and say, I'm not waiting any longer. I know this is the church where I need to be a member and I, I'm not waiting anymore. I'm going to obey God. Come to one of these pastors and say, I, I'm saved, but I've never been baptized, and I'm not waiting any longer to experience what she did. I'm going to be baptized. I'm not waiting any longer. Come and kneel at this altar on the kneeling bench and just pray to God about your relationship with Him. And as your own journey, how are you reacting? What's your attitude? And how are you making decisions while your own journey? Do you need to talk to God about that? Let's sing together. You come right now.